This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Swing and a high fly ball. Right field and deep. Geyer to the wall. Rays win. Rays win. Rays win. D-Man Toy with a two-run walk-off home run. The Rays winning ways here at Tropicana Field continue. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. On the lineup, he pitches. Adamas launches one way up into the air into left field. This one's got a chance. Turning Benintendi, Willie Adamas. With his first big league hit, it's a home run against Chris Sale. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Welcome to our latest show on deck today. Emilio Pagan on his tremendous start. A draft preview with the Rays' Rob Metzler and Jonathan Mayo of MLB Network. Visits with managers Charlie Montoyo and Rocco Baldelli. And will reminisce with Soot Simmer nearly five years after Don's passing. Well, we continue on This Week in Rays Baseball. And our featured guest this week is uh, reliever Emilio Pagan. And Emilio, before we talk a little bit about you this season, it's the eve of draft so tell me what your draft day experience was like when you were picked out of uh, Belmont Abbey. Uh, I sat and watched most of the draft uh, leading up to when I was selected. Actually, I probably watched all of the draft, to be honest. And um, I got a phone call on day one, which I was not expecting, from the Mariners. I actually got a couple. I got a call from the Blue Jays, actually, who were playing here this weekend. Just asked me, you know, my interest in signing and if I would sign for such and such amount, and I said, look, I'll sign for a plane ticket. I don't, you know, just give me the opportunity, please, and I'll, I'll sign. Sure enough, the next day, Seattle called me, I, I believe, in like the eighth or ninth round and said, uh, hey, we're going to pick you within the next couple of rounds. If you're still there, are you still interested in signing? And I said, yes, of course. Uh, and then Devin Moore, who was the area scout at that time, who's now a cross-checker with Seattle, called me and, and told me that they had just selected me in the 10th round and uh, – Instantly broke down into tears, called my called my dad, who was at work. My mom was there with me when I was selected, and uh, just a pretty special time and special moment for me and my family, and something I'll never forget. So was that pick-by-pick pick on the computer as you're following it, and the people, you just hear the voice of next round, next name? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was following. I, I watched the first round, which I believe was on MLB Network, followed on the computer uh, pretty much the rest of the way out saw a lot of friends get drafted uh, sent a lot of texts congratulating people and then when I was selected it was just uh, overwhelming feeling of humbleness and just excitement for for the next opportunity to go out and play the game that I loved. Where did that joy for the game begin and when did you think you could actually be a pro? For as long as I can remember I've loved the game. Uh, I started playing really really young I believe I was three years old. My older brother's uh, t-ball team needed an extra player, and the league allowed me to go play with the four- and five-year-olds. So uh, for as long as I can remember, I've loved the game. I would say probably my junior year of college, I understood that I I might have an opportunity to play at the next level. Still, at that time, was probably considered a long shot. I was playing at a Division II school in Belmont Abbey that 
historically has not had a ton of professional players come out of, of that school. So when when I heard that I was going to get an opportunity, you know, obviously, like I said before, I was super humbled and uh, excited for the opportunity and, and tried to make the most of it. And obviously you have. As a 10th rounder, you were the highest pick the school has ever had. Um, so what was the pride level for or, or your school in regards to you when that occurred? Yeah, I mean, unbelievable amount of pride. Belmont Abbey was a very special place for me the two years I was there. The coaching staff was was great and, and just giving me enough confidence to go out and play every day. I got to play third base while I was there. Uh, and just having the feeling that the coaching staff believed in you to go out and get a job done, uh, I think that's kind of what took me mentally to the next level. Uh, physically, there's tons of guys that have the ability to, to play this game at a very high level. But as everyone knows, with a game that's filled with failure, mentally toughness is uh, is a huge part of being successful. And having somebody who believes in you is is a great feeling. And I would say that that year, having somebody truly believe in me and, and tell me that, that they saw my ability to be successful is probably what took me to the next level. When did you think you could be a professional pitcher? Because you said you were a third baseman to start and you were a conversion guy. I was really a conversion to go play third because my, I started out as a pitcher at my first college. And at the time, I wasn't throwing very hard. I was like 88, 89, which these days, you know, you got you to gotta throw hard. And that, that's just, you know, the reality of the game. So I thought that, you know, going and showing that I could play multiple positions would maybe show that I was athletic enough to that, you know, once I got into pro ball that I could add some miles per hour to my fastball. And, and luckily, you know, scouts thought the same. I have started throwing harder in pro ball. And, and like I said, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. When did 95-96 show up, or 97 even on occasion? Every now and then it showed up, you know, pretty soon when I got into pro ball, but consistently, I would say after the 2016 season. I asked a lot of questions to some players who had done the driveline weighted ball program, you know, picked their brain, see what they thought about it, and then luckily enough, my pitching coach from, from Gardner-Webb University um, he had adopted the program and started doing it at his college at Lander University, which is another Division II school. And uh, so after in that offseason, I went, and he basically taught me how to do the program the right way. Ever since I started doing that program, you know, my average velocity has crept up each season. This is by far consistently the hardest I've thrown. And obviously it's helped you. Is this the best you've been in the big leagues? And if so, why do you think that's the case? There was a stretch last year. Uh, a, t- a 20 or 25 inning stretch where I was I was very successful. I don't know if I was better last year than I was this year during that stretch. Obviously, for the for the length of the season, it didn't go the way I wanted. But I would say this is the best I've felt ever mechanically and physically syncing those two up. Because there's times where you feel great mechanically, where physically you don't feel as great. Or there's times physically you're like, man, I feel like I can throw the ball through a brick wall but mechanically you're not lined up and and hitters pick up on that really quick if you're if your fastball is a different release point than your off-speed pitches. So I would say definitely this is the best I've ever felt in syncing up the physical ability with the mechanical and mental ability. How much has this place benefited you do you think and how different is it from where you were in Seattle and Oakland in terms of everything clubhouse environment um, to chemistry to everything else? Uh, well, first, first off, I'll, I'll say I was very fortunate in Seattle to be around a lot of veteran-type players, especially in the bullpen, having you know a Steve Ciszek who who's closed games for multiple teams, uh, David Phelps, 
uh, Nick Vincent, the guys guys that had been around, and then the overall electricness of uh, Edwin Diaz to see him at the back end of a bullpen. Help that learning how to be a big leaguer day in and day out because you're not always going to be successful. They helped me a lot. Last year in Oakland, team is very similar to this team. A lot of young players uh, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to establish themselves. You know, you kind of you learn to be a leader type player in those situations because everybody's trying to understand who they are each and every day. And then coming here, Tampa has been amazing from the front office down as far as communication goes. There's no no secret that Tampa's been innovators at, per se in the game of baseball. And the amount of communication from Mr. Neander, Mr. Bloom, all the way down to the coaching staff to the players has been amazing because you know you know you go into each and every game pretty much knowing what role they see you in and and when to be ready to pitch and that's been it's been amazing how hard has it been though with all the catchers i mean you knew mike zanino from seattle but the fact that they've had to use six because of all the injuries is it from a mental standpoint you have to have conviction in what you're throwing but you're dealing with so many guys who may or may not know what you're throwing that's where i think like as i said before the communication has just been amazing because it seems like our catchers haven't skipped a beat it's been awesome i mean look we've been fortunate that we were able to bring up you know a nick shufo and anthony Bemboom, who are incredible players and then to go sign a travis darno and eric kratz who've been around the game you know these guys not only are they great players but they're great people and and they want to help just as much as we want to be at our best on the mound. Obviously, you never want to see people get injured. You never want to see Zanino and Perez go down. But when we're fortunate enough to bring in great people as that are also great players, it makes the transition a lot easier. What's been your best moment so far uh, in the big leagues here and, other, and, and otherwise? Man, selfishly, I would say um, getting the save in Boston. That was, that was probably a highlight for me. But I would say... I, there, you know, I had an, an outing against the Nationals in 2017 where I went four innings in, in relief uh, and gave up one hit, I think, with no runs. I would say that was probably the moment where I realized, like, hey, I'm not, you know, I don't have to just be, get to the big leagues. I feel like I can be a successful big leaguer for some time to come. And I think that that appearance was probably an eye-opener for me, knowing that at the time the Nationals were arguably the best offense in the game, and I just threw – you know, a, a very great outing against them. So that was probably the, the outing that solidified in, in my mind and in my heart that I could be a big leaguer. Where does the WBC rank? And who did it mean more, you or your dad, Javier, who's from Puerto Rico? If it's, if, if it's not for the WBC, I don't know if I ever get a chance to pitch in the big leagues. I was successful in the minor leagues with Seattle, but on that stage um, to show to Mr. DePoto and the rest of the front office in Seattle that I, you know, that I could hold my own against those type players. That was a huge moment for me. And then as far as pride goes, you know, my dad's told me multiple times that that's probably his most proud moment of me on a baseball field. Just to be able to represent the island, represent my family. You know, I've, I've told Alex Cora, thank you, I don't know how many times for, for selecting me to be a part of that team. I figured I wouldn't pitch much, but, uh, you know, I'm very thankful that I was able to get into a couple games and kind of create more opportunities for me going forward. Obviously, an opportunity with this team too. What is it meant to be here on the East Coast for the first time, and how much is it meant to you and and your wife Jordan? You obviously have a young daughter Paxton, and the rest of your families. Yeah, being close to home is nice. Seattle, Oakland, great spots. Um, you know, thankful for for my time there. But being close to home has been 
has been a blessing. You know, I've seen we've seen family more often, uh, which is great for Paxton because I you know I want her to be to understand who you know who her family is. And being on the West Coast for seven eight months out of the year makes it a little tough. So you know, being close to home has been has been a, a blessing, and and we're very excited to be here. That said, you're about to go, maybe not about to, but it will be in the month of June that you go back to Oakland where you were last year. What's that going to be like facing those guys? <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll be fun to compete against those guys. Look, those guys are they are a great team. They're super talented. They're obviously on a great roll right now. So built a lot of strong relationships in that clubhouse. Just good people, good guys that play the game the right way. And I'm looking forward to uh, competing against them and, and having fun. We've enjoyed watching you compete so far, continued success on the mound. Thanks for some time on This Week in Rays Baseball. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. That's Emilio Pagan, and we'll continue right after this. You're listening to the Rays Baseball Network. Well, we continue on This Week in Rays Baseball, and, of course, the draft is tomorrow, and joining us the head of amateur scouting for the Rays and Rob Metzler. And, Rob, obviously uh, it appears that the last couple drafts have gone fairly well with the way some guys are progressing. What are the types of things you guys are doing as a group the last 24 hours uh, before a draft starts? We're finalizing our board. We probably have we have things narrowed down to you know smaller groups and smaller group comparisons of players within within our rankings. And we're trying to make sure that there's no information unaccounted for. We're trying to make sure that all perspectives have been weighed properly, and we're trying to prepare for every every last scenario that might come our way. You've got five of the top 100 picks, three of the top 40. You always want more picks. Um, is this a particularly good draft for that many that early? What's the depth like of this year's draft at the top? We feel good about, you know, I, I think in recent years, we've, you know, this is a challenge that we've, you know, we've had the past few years. In 17, we had four, 31, and 40. And in 18, we had 16, 31, and 32, and this year we have 22, 36, and 40, and I think they're similar opportunities. We feel like they've all been good good draft classes, and we, we feel like this is a good one as well. Where is this one strongest, if, if you were to, in, in which of the four quadrants in your mind? That would be hard to say. <laughs> I, I think that there's good, interesting prospects that fit in each of those quadrants. So I guess in the public sphere, maybe, you know, the narrative has been that the top of the draft pitching, college pitching is not as, as deep as it's been in past years. I, I'm not sure I would entirely agree with that. But, you know, I think in each of the four quadrants, it's a good group. Normally, obviously, before the draft, we'll work out players individually. When you're picking down to 22 versus higher the last two years, do you work out more players? Do you have to do some guesswork? How do you guys handle getting that face-to-face with players as you come closer to draft day? It's a challenge, Neil, because with the further down you draft, the more uncertainty there is. So I would say the answer is, you know, any opportunities we have to have face-to-face interactions with these prospects, we make sure we take advantage of them. One, we have a ton of trust in our staff around the country. You know, they do a great job getting to know these prospects. So whether it's me or another one of our senior staff members, you know, having a face-to-face with one of these prospects, that's great, but if our area man and our regional man and, and other members of our staff have, have had a lot of exposure to that prospect, we trust their opinions and we trust the work that, that our entire team has done. Obviously, uh, the organization is always trying to find ways to kind of maximize its resources. In the last two years, they've taken Brendan McKay and Tanner Dotson, and Jay Cronenworth is now back to being a two-way player. How important do two-way players figure into the top of your draft board at least the first couple of days? 
I would. I, I don't want to speak to you know the specific talent within within this class. Uh, I would say it's very dependent upon you know it, it's opportunity dependent. If there's somebody who has abilities like like one of those three prospects, we will explore that, and we're certainly open minded and creative to maximizing you know what what each prospect can do and impact you know impact the game. But it's very dependent on, on the talent within the within the talent class, and I'm hesitant to speak about that specifically. Certainly understandable. When when you look at the types of drafts that you've headed, how far out are you evaluating to the point that you say, okay, this was a good draft class or, a, or not a good draft class? I think we're still, you know, the drafts that I've had in 2016 being the first, I, I think we're still a little bit out from having any decisive verdict. I mean, truthfully, these careers are going to play out. You know, some of, some of them we're hopeful will we'll go, you know, for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, but start to have some sense three years out. But I think probably a five-year mark is probably the most, you know, most realistic to, to assess how these we have a sense for how they're doing, Neil, but but in terms of kind of systematically looking at it, it's still need a little more time. One thing where you guys, whether it's the dress that you headed or previously, it seems the last several years you guys have done a very good job also on the third day of the draft. Uh, I look at Kaleo Johnson from last year's group or Paul Campbell the previous year. Obviously, Nate Lowe, who's already in, gone to the big leagues, or Ian Jabot, who, while hurt this year, is on the 40-man roster. Uh, those are third-day draft picks. Why do you think you've had some success with those guys in terms of getting them through the system, uh, having them be potential big leaguers? I, I even could bring up Mike Brasso because while he wasn't drafted, he was a non-drafted free agent from that from a class. I would pin that entirely on our staff. You know, we have a really, really strong group of scouts throughout the country. They are tireless in their work. You know, I would also, you know, our, our staff in the office in terms of systematically valuing that work, you know, I think it gives us, poss- you know, the opportunity to maximize every bit of value. And, and we take each opportunity very serious, you know, from obviously the investment levels vary between day one and day two and day three. But our success with this draft class, you know, we need to have success on day one, day two and day three. All, all, all areas are very important. And, you know, to go back to the top, the 22, 36, 40 picks you have and, and they're on through the first couple days, how important is the signability factor and how much does that really depend on your scouts getting to know the player and knowing what's realistic and trying to get that player so that you can maximize the those day one and day two picks? It's a factor. You know, getting to know which which prospects ultimately are ready to uh, ready to begin their pro careers and, and which ones are maybe not as ready, you know, uh, and, and there's no way to do that without having staff that know these prospects really, really well. And this is uh, what your fourth that you've overseen. What, where do you think you've grown the most? Where do you think the, the group has grown the most in terms of processes and what you take into the draft tomorrow? I guess there's a little more confidence when you've been through a, a time or two in terms of what emotions you're going to feel, what you've just been down the road a few times. It's an exciting night. It's there's a lot to process. There's, you know, as, as solid as our board might be, I'm sure there will be something that we don't expect. I'm sure there will be some some variables that come our way that we have to process in real time. And when you've done it a time or two before, it just helps you manage those emotions a little bit better. As, as a as a group, I think we are we're constantly striving and we're making progress to best balance the the various viewpoints. And we we collect all viewpoints possible and collaboratively build a draft board you know it's not it's not easy when trying to we're we're 
picking the best baseball players in the country, and, and it, it's very, very normal for people to have different perspectives on that. And, and especially we, we strive to have a staff that has, has various different different perspectives. So we're not going to we're not going to have consensus. We're we're not going to be completely aligned in our views. That's healthy. But you know, finding better ways to balance those views each year, you know, is our goal. And I think we're we're making progress. We're never going to get there. We're never going to have you know, a perfect process, but we're going to try and get better each year. Do you think, as you look back on years, that your board is getting closer to to as accurate as possible? Because, I mean, it's it's impossible to be perfect, but you think <laughs> that the boards, when you start looking back, oh, we were we were right in there, and here's why we were right. I mean, do, do we think that each year, do we incrementally? I, I think the progress is, is very incremental. The challenge of trying to predict, you know, or forecast the future of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old baseball players and, and how their careers are going to unfold. It's an immense challenge. So to, to be able to say, you know, we're improving, I, I think incrementally we get a little bit better each year, but it's, it's incremental just because of the challenge that, that we face. Rob, thanks for a few minutes. We wish you good luck tomorrow, and uh, we appreciate some time on this week in race baseball. Thanks, Neil. Neil Solon's with you on This Week in Race Baseball, and now joining me to discuss the draft from MLB.com and MLB Network is Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, thanks for a few minutes. Well, you only say that because Jim Callis wasn't available. (laughs) I always choose you, Jonathan. I've had you every year. Well, Um, we've known each other a long time, Neil, so it makes sense. Yes, and this year from a draft, let's let's first, you know, kind of uh, 20,000 feet. Is this a good year? And if so, where is the strength of this year's draft? You know... It's, it's an up-and-down year. I don't think it's quite as good as last year. Last year's draft class, I think, was really good. Uh, obviously, you, you never know until seven, ten years down, down the line, but it, it, it's not quite as strong. I think there's more depth and talent up top. The strength is definitely hitters, uh, and that's part of what makes it not that great of a class. There are some very good hitters. It's just it's not as rich in pitching you know they say there's you can never have enough of that so it, it makes it a little more difficult but uh, we may have as many as 24 bats taken in the top 34 picks uh, to give you some idea and mm. the top and the top six it seems will almost definitely be all position players and that begins with what the oregon state catcher you expect to go to to baltimore at one uh, as of right now yeah adley rushman uh is the top of most most draft boards I did a story where I you know, did an anonymous polling of general managers, scouting directors, scouting executives, and I got 22 responses. 16 voted for, for Adley Rushman. Six voted for Bobby Witt Jr., you know, who you can make a case for is, is, is talented enough to go 1-1. But I think Adley Rushman's combination of plus tools on both sides of the ball at a premium position that it's hard to find talent at uh, you know, makes him, for me, the the guy that should go number one. And obviously would be an important piece of the rebuild for the Baltimore Orioles. From a Rays perspective, they actually do have three of the top 40 picks, four of 61, five of 100. After six of the top 100 last year, they seem to have everything fall their way last year. Who are some guys who are maybe starting to fall, like a Matthew Libertor did last year and, and kind of, you know, obviously gave them a really good boost in terms of their class? Yeah, well, keep in mind that we didn't know that that Libertor was going to get to that part of the draft until that part of the draft. I mean, we, th- there was no sign until really, really late that he was not going to go uh, in the top ten, uh, and there was no real reason for it. I mean, that was that was a coup for the Rays because not only did he get there, but it's not like they had to bend to to get him. This wasn't a signability thing. It just something got messed up, and you know, 
kudos to the Rays for, for jumping on that and getting that done. I, I think in general, Neil, you, know, you, you look at high school arms, those are the ones that tend to sort of slide down a little bit just because of the risk factor. Uh, and then you sort of start looking at the potential for signability. You know, there are guys like Brendan Malone, who is in Florida, uh, University of North Carolina commit. I don't know that there'll be signability issues, but he is the kind of profile that could sort of slip to one of those extra picks. Daniel Espino is another high school arm. Both of them are going to be at the draft, which leads me to believe that they're not going to go too far, although stranger things have happened. Hunter Barco uh, is another guy also from, from Florida, University of Florida commit. Uh, there could be some signability concerns there. Those are three of the, the pitchers that could end up being in that extra pick category for teams like the Rays. Of course, the, the Arizona Diamondbacks have a lot of extra picks, so mm-hmm. uh, Tampa's going to have to fight it out with, with a team like the Diamondbacks uh, that has you know a, a ton of pool money to work with. Rays again pick at 36 and 40 after number 22, where I think you and Jim both predict the Rays will go with Gunnar Henderson, a shortstop from Alabama. You know, I think I've I've mixed it up. That uh, that name has certainly shown up quite a number of times. I, you know, I haven't made more calls for. I'll do I'll do a mock Sunday night, okay. and then we do a final one Monday afternoon. The name's only one that we use as our official scorecard. I think Gunnar Henderson could fit really well there. Keone Kavaka was a guy that I thought might be a good fit for there, but I'm getting the sense that he's going to be gone by the time the Rays pick 22. He has uh, got a lot of helium. But the, you know, th- those are definitely two of the names uh, that I have heard probably the most in that spot at 22. And when you said that a lot of guys were going to be um... – hitters among the first 34 picks is it seems like there's a fair amount of what high school level shortstops that are pretty talented there's a good amount of shortstops yeah um it is uncanny so there could be some guys for that for those extra picks not because they fall there you know a guy who could fall there because of signability might be a guy like anthony volpe he was a guy i didn't mention uh at the barton prep in new jersey uh, that would be a signability it would take extra money to get that done but there's uh, a guy like Brooks Lee, who's out in California, could go play for his dad at Cal Poly. Uh, but I, I, I haven't heard that it's like a huge signability thing. Talent-wise, he might fit in right around there. Uh, Reese Hines is probably more of a third baseman. Uh, there's some swing and miss concerns, but he has as much raw power as anybody. Uh, so a lot of infielders. Uh, Hines has, has played shortstop, but I don't think he'll play shortstop at the next level. And you mentioned this was kind of a lighter year for uh, college pitching especially. Why do you think that is? You know, it's cyclical. I don't know that there's any, like, real explanation. There just aren't that many arms. I mean, I guess, you know, you could make the argument. I'd have to go back and look, say, at the draft class of three years ago and see if a lot of high school pitching got signed that year or it was a good year for high school pitching. I mean, typically finding college hitters has been difficult over the last several years because the scouting industry has done such a tremendous job of identifying hitters coming out of high school. Some of that is because there's so much more data for high school hitters, uh, the summer showcase stuff. Uh, you see them against good competition. So they're getting uh, identified and signed more readily. So this is, to me, this is kind of an outlier in how many good college hitters there are. And I think the college pitching, it's just, it may just be a cyclical thing. You know, next year we may look and see that there's a, a ton of really good college arms to, to look at. No question. And uh, we look forward to seeing your last uh, mock draft, uh, and we'll be watching closely on Monday. Jonathan, thanks very much for a few minutes. Thanks, Neil.
That is Jonathan Mayo of MLB Network and MLB.com. Let's go from the MLB draft, which begins tomorrow, to two former coaches of the Rays who this week returned as managers. When Blue Jays skipper Charlie Montoya was in town, I asked him what returning to Tropicana Field meant to him. You know, even though I saw him in spring training, during spring training, it was pretty cool. Uh, I think what the Rays did for me, the, the stuff they, they put on the scoreboard, that, that was pretty cool, and I don't take that for granted because they don't do that for everybody, and, and I, I thought that was really nice of them to do that for me. Were there particular things on that video that touched you in certain ways, and if so, what was there? Everything about it, you know, and I could say something funny here because Matt Silverman would laugh, but I could say, yeah, the picture with me and Matt, because <laughs> he knows me. But, no, everything about it, they did a great job with it, and I, and I really appreciate it very much. Obviously, the memories are more than what's in that video, though. What are some other things that maybe they don't even have pictures of, but that when you think of your best memories with this organization? You know, it's, it's 20 some, 24 years, you know, 18 in the Mountain Leagues and, and four in the Big Leagues. Just, you know, the, the championships in the Mountain Leagues, you know, dealing with Mitch Lukovic, you know, Jim Hoff, you know, so many people that have helped this organization become who they are. You know, one of the, you know they're one of the best teams in baseball now, and, and, and I'm proud of that, even though I'm on the other side and in the same division I'm really happy for them and how happy the race are doing. How exciting have the last several months though been for you and how much have you enjoyed this in terms of the opportunity? You know you know me it, this is like the perfect job for me uh, I'm helping kids become better young guys so it just doesn't get any better than that for me you know seeing Vigio, Guerrero you know all these kids Guriel you know Hernandez it's it's fun for me you know and and we know it's going to be you know it's going to be a long road you know the first couple of years but they're going to get better and like I always said before this team reminds me of Boston you know five years ago when Mookie Betts and them first came up and you know you look at the standings they finished last but you go they're going to be good someday and that's what I think about this club. Has seeing uh, Vladdy making his big league debut has that been maybe the top moment so far? I tell you what, I've never seen anything like it. That first game that he played in Toronto, it was just like a playoff game. You know, cameras everywhere. It, it was, it was. I've never seen anything like it. And I got to give that kid credit because he does impress. He relaxes. He just likes the game, and and I just cannot relate with that. He's he's even kill, and that's pretty impressive for me. You also have seen when the Toronto team is winning when you came in as a as a visitor and you now see how they've embraced the Raptors with them getting to the NBA finals is that kind of excite you as to what could be yeah, that's what I, we 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 talked to the players. That's going to be us, you know, in a couple of years because we were there when the Raptors won and and town went crazy, and that was that was fun to see. You managed for so many years in the Rays organization, but now managing at the major league level, what's the biggest difference? You know, actually, there's not that much difference. At the end of the day, the good teams are going to win, and the bad teams are not going to win. You know, players play, you let the players play, and the better they play, the, the better you're going to manage, and, and that's a fact. So uh, it doesn't matter what people say. The better the team, the better you manage, and that's just what it is. And, and one thing for sure, Pitching and defense wins a lot of games. Probably the the one thing that is different, though, is all the uh, media work that you do on on this side. Ha, has that been challenging? What's been the biggest difference? Is as and has that been the biggest difference for you? That's the biggest difference. Yeah, I mean, and and it is and it is a challenge. Although you know, our reporters in Toronto are outstanding people and they're easy to talk to. There's always a chance you say something that you might not want to say, and, and that's a challenge every day. You know, but so far it's been fine. And and again, the the press in Toronto, you know, they're good people, so they're easy to talk to, so that, that helps a lot. 
You had a lot of great mentors um, as a manager at the minor league level. Are there any that you talk to now that are helping you during your first season, whether it's by text, whether it's by call? You know, actually, it's managing here is just like, like in the mountain leagues. Like, like, thanks to Mitch Lukovic, I, I, got, I, I got to manage in the mountain leagues. You know, I did it my way. They let me do it. They, they, so that, that helped me manage now in the big leagues. So, you know, the one thing that I know for sure, that coming coming up through the mountain leagues, you know, when Bill Lipsy was here and, and, and all those guys, they taught me a lot, you know, and they helped me be myself and, and they let me manage and, and that helped me a lot. So and I always remember Tom Gamboa in, in in winter ball, he also helped me a lot and, and I kinda managed kinda like he does anyways. Very positive and, and you know and, and let the guys play. And that is Charlie Montoya, who made his first trip back this week as manager. So did Rocco Baldelli, of course, and I asked Rocco about what returning to Tropicana Field was like. I've walked into the Trop many times. I mean, it's, this is a place I'm very familiar with and a place that's been very good to me and a place I enjoy showing up to. You know, walking in, getting off the, the shuttle from the Vinoy and, you know, getting out and walking in and walking past the Rays Clubhouse and going into the Visitors Clubhouse it's different. I mean, it's certainly different, and but it's not something that, you know, throws me completely off. I did it once uh, when I was with the Red Sox for, for a few games, and, um, you know, although it does feel a little odd and a little different, it's, again, it's it's the reality of the situation, but I do get to still come in and, and see everyone. Seeing all the people who I, I know very well, and hopefully, you know, who I'll always know very well, and just get a chance to see him because I don't get to see him every day like I used to. And, I, you know, I feel very lucky for all of those relationships. But, uh, you know, even if I only get four days in, in St. Pete right now, I'll take advantage of all four days. I know you, Charlie, and Kevin have your fun text exchange that went on during the course of the year. But who else are you? have you stayed in touch with and how difficult is it while you're also learning a very difficult job? That it is a challenge too, because one of the tough things about the new job is I used to stay in touch with everyone and do it, try to do it very well, and I don't look at my phone a ton anymore, and you know have other things going on that become priorities that I never, never had to worry about before. So the texting and the calls are probably few and far between, but there are probably still too many people to count that I've that I keep in touch with, you know, one way or another might not be as much as I want, might not be as many texts or as many calls as I'd like, but there are still a dozen or two people over here in in Tampa Bay that I still talk to. Is time management going from coaching to managing the greatest challenge that you've had because of all the additional responsibilities? And if, if not, what are some of the greater challenges? Um, I'd say that's actually, it's an interesting question. And I think it's something that's true. I mean, it's just a, it's a different type of schedule and a different type of, I mean, it's a a little bit of a different job than, you know, anything that I've ever done before. It's not even, it's not just, you know, what are my responsibilities? It's not about me. It's about, it's about everybody here, you know, making sure that you take the time and you look after and care for and do everything you need to do for everyone in this organization and everyone in this clubhouse. And, you know, so, so yeah, you, you end up putting stuff on the, on the back burner that used to be part of your, of your regular existence and your life and things like that. But it's something that, that I still feel good about. It's, you know, perfectly okay. And, and something that probably the most important part of, of this new job, making sure that everyone else is okay. Book with Sid Zimmer this week, because we're on the fifth anniversary of Don's passing. And I'm curious, along with him, who are some of the influences you think that have impacted the way you look and see the game and manage a game now? Well, I mean, there's, there's quite a few. I've spent a lot of time around some, 
some very special people in the game, Zim obviously being one. I mean, all the managers and coaches that I've ever played for certainly played a role in what I do and the way I think about things and, and all of that, from Andrew Friedman and Matt Silverman and, and you know Eric and Haim and James and all the guys um, in the office here and, and R.J. Harrison and uh, Bobby Heck. They're probably, you know, I'm going to miss uh, a, a lot of people who I'd like to talk about, but Bill Evers, who I hear, who I have here with me now in, in Minnesota, and uh, and Jimmy Hoff and Mitch, and and just there's, you know, every conversation you have, you know, and the time you spend with with people that you care about and whose opinions that you you know greatly respect, both baseball opinions and just life opinions. You know, one thing we do get to do in this game is spend time with other people and talk. You know, those are the conversations that kind of create the relationships, but also give you all the perspective that you have going forward. And, you know, it's it's all of those people, and, and there are many more, believe me, that were there for me the entire time. And that is Rocco Baldelli, and we certainly wish him a lot of success other than the games against Tampa Bay. Coming up on This Week in Race Baseball, Soot Zimmer on Don Zimmer. Nearly five years after his passing, you're listening to the Race Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Race Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. It's nearly five years since the race in baseball lost one of the great ambassadors in the game in Don Zimmer. And each year I remember his life and legacy with his wife, Soot Zimmer, who now joins us. Soot, how are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there for an old bag. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> and, then, and then I laugh. But I am an old bag. I mean, I am 88. <laughs> Jeez. That sounds awful, doesn't it? I, I say 88 years young because you still have that <laughs> tremendous spirit. Um, oh, thank you. You know, and, and I always think of Don in such a positive way with, I, I think generally, but when it comes to the draft, um, I think of him and five years ago when Bud Selig made that uh, uh, announcement at the draft about Don and how if everybody played with the passion and the love for the game that he did, they would obviously have some kind of career. Do you kind of think that way too? Yes, and I do remember that, him making that remark. I thought that was so nice, yes. Don did have that passion, right. <clears throat> he might not have been a uh, Ted Williams or Mickey Mantle, but he played the game hard and had fun, and, well, it lasted a long time <laughs> being around anyway. No question about that. And a decade with the Rays that I know is special. So I'm wondering, um, if he were watching now, what would he think of the group that's currently assembled that has been playing so well for the first third of the season? I think, I mean, like everybody else, we're just in awe to watch these as they say, the no-names. Well, they're making a name from themselves. I mean, they keep going out there and winning one way or the other, and it's fun to watch. I really, I really, you know, like this team. They're doing good. And I think he would be proud, you know, if he was here to watch them, too. And I think he also would be proud of what went on this week. I mean, Toronto came to town, and now Minnesota's in town. And that's Charlie Montoyo and Rocco Baldelli, both managing clubs right now. Uh, Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it's amazing how many of them have gone on to be managers. You know, even uh, uh, the one of the the Nationals, uh, Davey Martinez, Mm -hmm. he was another one that was here. And, well, it just goes on and on. Yes, I wish them all the luck in the world, and uh, they're doing good. Uh, especially <laughs> Rocco, he's doing something else. How you know? How exciting for him? No question. Tell me how. Um, what you think he might? His thoughts would be on the way the game has changed because in five years um, since his passing, it, it really to me has changed dramatically in terms of the shifting, the format, outfields, the way relievers are used, the the opener, all of that. What do you think he'd say? I think he'd be scratching his head and 
shaking at maybe saying, my, how my old game has changed. It definitely has. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I don't know if it's all for the, gr- the good or the bad or what, but it definitely, as you say, changed. But it's not only in baseball. It's in life. Our whole life has changed with all the, you know, the social media. And we watch television and we get the news immediately. When I grew up, none of us had television. You didn't, you know, all these things didn't happen immediately. Now everything's, let's do it right this second. <laughs> you got to do it right now. So maybe some of this is, you know, it, de- it definitely, though, making the game different to watch. That's for sure. And while the game is different and it's, it's maybe changing at a faster pace, I always thought of Don as an innovator because of the safety squeeze that, you know, every time <laughs> Rays run it, he uses. And sometimes he would put guys in motion with the bases loaded on a 3-2 count just to You're make right. it tough on the defense. So he was an innovator in a lot of ways, too. Well, I've heard different people say he managed with his gut. He did things not trying to be an innovator, but he just did it the way he thought, you know, it should go. But, uh, you know, it didn't always work. And just like the shift doesn't always work. You know, about the shift, I can never understand when a player comes up and sees everybody on the right of the field, why don't they try to bunt to the left where there's nobody there? I saw it happen the other day. I thought, gee, somebody finally learned to bunt to the left when there's no player there. Unbelievable. You're right. And uh, I, I would imagine, I mean, look, they say it's a game of adjustments. We'll see how the players adjust as uh, strategies adjust. Your family is now how many kids, grandkids, great-grandkids that you have? I had two children, four grandkids, and now I have five greats. Jeez, I'm going to tell you something. Talking about getting old. You know you're getting old when your two kids go on Medicare. But then you know you're really old when your oldest grandson turns 40. <laughs> but I can still lay it. That, that's, that's the key to longevity. Find the humor in everything. Don't lose, you know, don't be serious all the time. Find something to laugh about. I think Don was the same way. I mean, you were two peas in a pod that way. Oh, well, thank you. Well, he did say, even though we all know that baseball's a business, he said you've got to have fun. You know, it is a game, and you should have fun. But, uh, you know, I'm sure the, the boys are having fun today, too. But, you know, you can't take it all seriously that much all the time. I'd agree with that. And I, and I think that the fact that, I mean, you look at the celebrations, the Rays are known for their celebrations after victories, probably just as much as any team in baseball, probably why he would enjoy this group, because they do have so much fun on the field. Oh, they do have fun. <laughs> And now I just found out I didn't know what it meant when someone, I don't know whether it's whether they got a double or whether they got a home run, they put those two fingers up. And I, and I saw Choi do it a lot. And now it, it was explained in the paper the other day. That means something uh, that instead of the high five and that, they put two fingers up. Have you seen the, the guys do that on the field? Yes. After, now I forget what they even, that, that's another thing about being eight, 88. You forget always what you, I <laughs> I read it in the paper what that meant, and I can't remember what it meant. It's some term, you know, that means, like, good luck or something. Yes, yes, and it's kind of their own high-five at a distance. Right, but it's the two fingers. You know, I mean, I I definitely noticed that, which is cute. I mean, I think that's good. You know, that's something to smile about. It is, it is. How often are you getting, I, I know you still did a lot of things to kind of remember Don's legacy, whether it was attending dinners or luncheons or things of that nature. Are you still able to do that? Yes, I am. In fact, in February, uh, they give out 
at the uh, Clearwater for Youth Banquet, they give out a scholarship that the Rays support, uh, the Don Zimmer Scholarship. And then later on, I come to the TROP and give it again, you know, with the, with the, uh, the winner, it's whether boy or girl, from somewhere in the Clearwater area, on the field at the TROP, you know, to show that they won this scholarship. So I do that, and I still have been given out the MVP award at the end of the season at a luncheon. Yeah, if I'm still able to walk, I'll still try to make it down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully maybe there's a, a, a playoff game that or, or two that you'll be able oh, to attend. Oh, yeah. It. Yes. Well, they, they, they certainly are showing their, you know, they're right up there and. And my biggest regret is that enough people don't come out to the ballpark. Now, I've been there a million times. I'm not talking about the TROP, but I followed Don since we were together at 16 in high school. High school, Legion ball, minor leagues, big leagues. I've I've certainly done my job of going to the game. I can't make it that often anymore, but I certainly watch it on television every day. I look forward to the games. But we've got to support the team. We've got to have people come out. I mean, it's one thing to watch on television, but you've got to to support the team at the ballpark. As good as they're playing, why more people don't come out? I don't understand it. I think that's well said on your part, and I hope people uh, kind of follow suit. You still have a granddaughter who's still coaching? Yes, I do. uh, Whitney Monica Goldstein, she's the WPI Worcester Polytechnic Institute. She's a softball coach. They won the conference. She was picked coach of the year, and uh, they won the conference playoff, but then they lost uh, in the regionals. So, yes, and I stream her games on my iPad. (laughs) So some days I'm watching her in the afternoon, the Rays at night, and what have you. (laughs) I'm watching ball games all the time. And I would guess that uh, whether it's uh, grandkids, great-grandkids, that's probably where you get the most pride. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, you were talking about the suicide squeeze. I saw Whitney pull that in one of her games, and I thought, my gosh, here goes Pops. He would have been so proud she pulled off that suicide squeeze. And you know what? He didn't always want to take credit for that. He said he got that from Billy Martin. But he introduced that to Joe Madden and different ones, you know, and so I notice that lots of times they'll give him credit for that, but I think he said that he got it from Billy Martin, so, you know, he doesn't take full credit for it. You know, it is a fun play to watch. <laughs> well, what do they say? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery? Yeah, you're right. And as we um, continue on this, you know, conversation, so what's what are the things that you hope that, you know, because we still see his number, we still see his name in so many places in the clubhouse, down in spring training, and here at Tropicana Field, what's the one thing that you you hope that fans of baseball know about Don? Oh, he loved the game. There's no doubt about it. And uh, he gave us all, like I say, he wasn't a superstar, but, you know, he loved being around the young fellows, especially at the end. I owe so much to the Rays for keeping him on all those years to be a mentor to the young fellows, because I think that helped to keep him live longer, being around the young. When he was on dialysis at the end, he would go to the clinic, which was near the ballpark, and go through that dialysis for four hours, get in the car and drive to the ballpark. The doctors and nurses couldn't believe that he did that. They had other patients in their 40s that had to go home and go to bed. But he loved being around the guys, and I swear that, you know, going down to that ballpark helped to keep him going longer than maybe was, you know, for other people. He loved the game, and uh, he was in it a long time, and 
he started it from little on. <laughs> it's amazing to hear that story because, you know, it's as much as I think so many people who knew him loved him, he obviously loved the game probably even more than, than people knew. Oh, yeah, he did. He did. And the same kind of lives with you, obviously. I mean, you can hear the fact that you're watching your, your granddaughter's games on an iPad and, and watching the Rays in the same day. That's obviously, right. that you you love the game just as much. And then I go to MLB, you know, the Rays aren't playing and catch another game on that. And, there, well, on that one, there's about two or three games a day. So if I want to watch baseball or any kind of ball, on now on television, there's softball tournaments. I mean, there's just so much on it. But, yes, I love the game, and, uh, and I'm watching it all the time. Do you still hear from a lot of people, whether it's uh, Jim Leland, uh, Joe Torre, people like that, that I know had stayed in touch with you? Yes. In fact, it hasn't been too long ago that Jim Leland called me. You know, the last two years that Don was around, Jimmy Leland called him every single day. I cannot believe that he did that. That's what you call a true friend, called him every day. And now he calls me, not every day, every couple of weeks, just to see how I am. And, and I've got several of his old friends that do that, which I think is nice. See if I'm still kicking. <laughs> and I am. And we're happy you are. And, oh, thank you. And as mentioned, uh, you know, before uh, and again, uh, I enjoy this conversation as much as any I have during the course of the year. And as long as you're willing, I want to make sure that we keep Don's memory alive every single year and continue to have the conversation about what he meant to the game. Thank you very much, and I hope we do too. I hope I'm around to keep the, this conversation going. Thank you so much. That is Soot Zimmer, one of the most enjoyable interviews and individuals you're ever going to hear on the radio. We certainly appreciate her time and all of our guests on this week in Rays Baseball. Emilio Pagan, Rob Metzler, Jonathan Mayo on the draft, managers Charlie Montoyo and Rocco Baldelli. If you ever have something going to hear on the program, all you have to do is tweet me at Neil Solons. Next week on the show, we'll review the draft and an enjoyable chat with Tommy Pham for my producer, Derek DeBose. Neil Solon saying stay tuned. The pregame show is next as the Rays take on the Twins in the last of four. This is the Race Baseball Network.